That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about God's covenants. Specifically, we're talking about Hebrews chapter 8. Um, although that's really not that specific because we're really talking about a lot of other stuff that's connected to Hebrews chapter 8. So go ahead and turn there and we'll read it. Before we get there, I want to explain how Hebrews is kind of a really tough book. How many of you have been to Lowe's, the restaurant here in town? How many of you have gotten pancakes at Lowe's? Right? When you order pancakes at Lowe's, they take like a giant ice cream scoop, stick it in the butter, pull it out, out, and then smack it right on top of the pancakes. So you get like this much butter on your pancakes. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but this huge, giant dollop of butter on your pancakes. And, I mean, I don't know, maybe some of you do, but most people I know don't eat pancakes that way. Right, they, they spread the butter across the surface of the pancake. And although you can do that and still have a huge chunk of butter left over. Well, most of the Bible, most of the New Testament, when it talks and incorporates the Old Testament into what the author's talking about, it, it does it like we do in pancakes. It spreads it out. It's kind of scattered across the verses. The book of Hebrews, the author takes that ice cream scoop out, sticks it into the butter, and pours this huge chunk on a passage on a verse. Uh, today, what we're going to read, he's, he puts two of those big chunks of butter, which is in this case references the Old Testament, into this passage. And so today we're going to go through Hebrews 8, but we're going to save most of Hebrews 8 for next time because there's some really big ideas that we need to wrestle with first before we can understand really what he's trying to communicate to the Hebrew. We've got to deal with the butter so we can eat pancakes next time. So let's read Hebrews 8 together and then I'll talk about where we're kind of going in the Old Testament today. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is an anchor on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. 
thank you for your word. For all of us. God, thank you for the New Testament that tells us the story of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and how we apply his good news to our lives, how we live in light of who he is and what he's done. God, we thank you for the Old Testament, which in hope and faith looks forward to redeeming your promises by sending the redeemer to the promise. Again, we would have been in need, but we can look back and know that that promised redeemer has come in Christ. And we thank you that we can read in your word that all of your promises find their yes in Christ. Father, I pray today that we together seek to understand more about how we reconcile things in the New Testament, things in the New Covenant, things in the Old Testament, things in the Old Covenant. That you would just empower us with your spirit uh, to, to learn more about your word, not so that we can just know more about the word, so that we can know more of you in your word, so that we can know more of your son in your word. I pray that you would just meet with us uh, and we seek to grow in our knowledge of you. It's in your name we pray. So in chapter 8, the author of Hebrews is, is continuing what he's been talking about. He's been talking about Jesus' priesthood. We've kind of been repeating this statement every week as we've gone through these chapters. So we are continually reminded of what it is that he's trying to tell us about Jesus as a priest. He says that Jesus is a better priest who's once for all sacrificed, purchased eternal redemption, and inaugurates a better covenant than yours. Forever. So we talked about some of that the first half of that statement. We talked about Jesus' permanent priesthood. We talked about his sacrifice. That's going to come up again in chapter 10. But today, in chapter 8, and next week in chapter 8, the focus is on this new covenant that he inaugurates when he comes as a priest. And so uh, in, the, in chapter 8, he's got to the point where he's kind of established that Jesus is a different kind of priest, that he's a better priest, and now he's turning to talk about this, this new covenant that he's bringing. In the first kind of five or so verses, he's talking about how the earthly priests have a ministry that just kind of represents these types and shadows of what really matters. What really matters is Jesus' priestly ministry and heaven. That stuff he's going to talk about again in chapter 9, so we're just going to kind of push that off until we get there in chapter 9. It'll make more sense when he explains it further. So if that kind of makes you wonder what he's saying, hang on, we'll get there. But in verse 6, he gets to this really significant statement he makes about Jesus' ministry. He says, as it is, in contrast to the Old Testament priestly ministry, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So what he's saying here is he's making a comparison. He's saying, just like Jesus' priestly ministry is so much better than the other priest's ministry, so also the covenant that he mediates is so much better than the old covenant. And we hear that and we think, of course it is. Right? We, we know that what Jesus does, his ministry, his teaching, the law that he gives us, it's, it's so much better. But what we don't realize is how insane the author of Hebrews would sound to these people by saying that. Right? What's, what's the name of this book? It's the letter to the Hebrews. The Hebrew people were all about the Old Covenant. Like it, it was 
the pinnacle of God's revelation to them. They even heard about this promise of the new covenant, but they were wrapped up in the old covenant. This would be like somebody, somebody coming to us and saying, there's something that's so much better than the gospel. We would say, no way. I don't believe that's literally unbelievable. But that's what he's saying. He's saying it is as much better as the old covenant. Jesus' priestly ministry is better than the priestly ministry of the Old Testament priests. And he's going to explain the promises of the old covenant in that section that he quotes from Jeremiah, saying this new covenant that Jesus mediates is better than the old covenant because it's enacted on better promises. He's going to unpack those promises. And then he gets to verse 13. And then he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So not only does he say that this new covenant is so much better than the old covenant, he says that this new covenant makes this old covenant obsolete, which is another really shocking thing for him to say to these people that were all about keeping the old covenant. So in order for us to get what this means, both from a our understanding of it perspective and also from a like we want to try to understand this the way they would have understood it so we can really appreciate how much better the new covenant really is. Uh, we need to kind of get some preliminary things so we can come back to this passage and really understand it. And so uh, there are four important things that I think we really need to get as people in order to put ourselves in their place and understand what he's saying about the new covenant. So we can really get what it means for us as Christians to live in light of the new covenant. These four things are, uh, number one, I think we may have a slide, we may not, I don't know. Number one is that the covenant, or the concept of covenant, is hugely important in Scripture and should be just as significant for us as it was to them. So just like their lives were wrapped up in the old covenant, our lives should be wrapped up in this, this new covenant. Second thing is that the new covenant really is so much better than the old. Uh, it's not something that's passe, that's ho-hum, that doesn't really matter. It really matters, and I want you to see how much better it is. The third thing is the relationship, uh, is understanding the relationship between the new covenant and the old covenant. And the fourth thing is how the new covenant should shape and inform our lives as believers. So that's kind of what we're after over the next two weeks as we look at Hebrews chapter 8 and try to apply it to our lives. Not just understand it, but apply it to our lives. So we're going to do this by asking four questions. The first question is why do covenants matter? Covenants are really so significant and important. Why? Number two is what's new and better about the old covenant, the new covenant? Number three is what does it mean that the old covenant is obsolete? And number four is why does it matter that we live under the new covenant? The way we're going to attack these questions is this week we're going to do, we're going to focus mostly on question one. We're going to get in a little bit to question two, and the next week we're going to come back and we're going to talk about question two, and then questions three and four out of that. And the reason why we need to focus on question one first is because we need to put ourselves in a position to understand how insane it would sound for him to say that you know, this new covenant is so much better than the old covenant, so we can understand how covenants uh, are really important in Scripture, in the lives of God's people, and as God's people in our lives as well. And so, we're going to answer the question, why do covenants matter today? And right here, I want to tell you that some of this stuff uh, you may find boring. 
Uh, we're going to talk about some theological systems. I'm going to do some definitions. There's going to be a couple of tables comparing one thing to another thing. Uh, and it's going to be hard to track through. I really like theology. I really like reading theological books. I really like studying these things. And uh, I get bored, too. Uh, but the way I keep myself from plowing through a book, like, the way I keep myself plowing through a book, keep myself from setting aside or taking a nap on the couch in my office, is by reminding myself why these things matter. By thinking about what, what the end goal is. Why am I reading this book? Why are we looking at these tables? Why are we listening to these definitions? Because we want to know why covenants matter. Because we want to appreciate the new covenant for what it is. And so uh, the first thing I'm going to do is give away the answer. I'm going to tell you why covenants matter. So that we can walk through understanding why covenants matter. Uh, so that you can hang on with me through that. So the answer to why covenants matter is because they are like the backbone of Scripture. And so if you think of yourself without a backbone, you're a puddle. But you can't stand up, you can't use your arms, you can't use your legs, uh, your spinal cord has zero protection, like you would be pretty much useless as a human being without a backbone. The Bible, in the Bible, covenants are that backbone. Right? They're not the main thing. They absolutely are not the main thing about the main thing of the Bible is Jesus. In the Old Testament, it's the story of God's promise to send a redeemer who's going to overturn the curse of the fall and fulfill all of God's promises. And the New Testament is looking back on the fact that God has sent that promised redeemer who has overturned the curse of the fall, who's brought God's kingdom, and who's going to make all things new. That's the main thing in the Bible. The main thing in the Bible is God's overarching story of redemption of his people and his renewal of his creation. Covenants are how we did that story. Covenants are what that story comes through. It progressively unfolds through the covenants in the scripture, and that's how we get the main thing. So, if we don't get covenants, we don't really get the main thing as much as we should. And I'm going to explain how this happens in a bit. But I want to give you that answer now so that you understand why covenants actually matter, so that hopefully you'll listen to all this mumbo jumbo about the covenants. So we can get that they really are important, that they really do matter, and we really should learn more about them. So, back to the question, why do covenants matter? To get this first, we need to know what covenants are and how they help us make sense of the Bible. So I'm going to throw out a definition, which should be on the slide right there already. A covenant is an enduring agreement which defines a relationship between two parties involving a solemn binding obligation or obligations specified on the part of at least one of the parties or the other, they bind both under threat of divine curse and ratified by a visual ritual. Right? This is what we all think of when we think of covenants, right? This big long definition of those qualifications. A covenant promise. Right? It's a solemn promise that brings with it obligations that's enacted by uh, one or more parties and it continues. It endures. Really, when we think of covenants, we probably think of contracts. Because we exist in a kind of contractual society. The only really covenant that we have in our culture is marriage, and mostly we treat it just like a contract. 
Um, so I want to, there's a table here that explains the difference. We're not going to walk through all of this stuff. We're going to focus on some of the big things. Right? The purpose of a contract, when we enter into contracts with people, is because we think we're giving a good deal. Right? I'm going to sign a contract because I think there's something I'm going to get out of it for me. You sign a contract because you think the same thing. So when two parties enter into a contract together, they're usually both thinking we're getting a good deal or they wouldn't be entering into the contract. Even if the good deal is I'm getting rid of this loss that's on my books. So that's why you enter into a contract. The covenant, the purpose of a covenant is relationship. That's why someone enters into a covenant with someone else, because it's a covenant relationship. They're defining the terms of their relationship. This is an ancient world DTR that's taking place. The people who initiate the contract, right, for us, it's mutual partners. They're working together, they're agreeing together, they're firing out the details, negotiating the contract. For a covenant, it's always the stronger party. The stronger party comes to the weaker party and he says, Boom! Here's this covenant. And the weaker party says, okay. Which means, in the Bible, covenants are always initiated by God. He's the one who makes covenants. We participate in the covenants that he's made. The other thing we're going to focus on is the obligation. For a contract, the obligation is performance. I'm going to sign my name, which says I'm going to do something. I'm going to pay bills, I'm going to you know, teach at a school, I'm going to do whatever. When we sign contracts, it's saying that we're going to do something. A covenant, on the other hand, the expectation, because it's about a relationship, it's not about some sort of mutual benefit that we're getting, it is loyalty. So when God makes covenants with his people, he's expecting loyalty from them. Now, that loyalty is going to take the form of obedience. Right? Being loyal to a ruler means doing what the ruler says. And so when God makes covenants with his people, he's desiring relationships with them, he's setting the terms of the agreement, and the purpose of the agreement is so that his people would be loyal to him, and that he would be loyal to his people. That's what covenants are about. So God initiates these covenants, they're these enduring, long-term agreements, uh, they don't terminate like contracts do, they just keep going forever or until one of the parties violates them to the point that they're broken beyond repair. That's what covenants are. Where do we see these in the Bible, or how do these help us make sense of the Bible? This is the next kind of question we need to ask before we can talk about why covenants actually matter, even though I already gave the answer away. So, in order to answer this question, we need to talk about uh, theological systems and theological systems are um, And we want to be able to say, I don't need some system outside of the Bible to understand the Bible. I can just come to the Bible and I can read the Bible on my own. The problem with that is we read the Bible from the perspective of a theological system. And even if you don't think that you have a theological system, you do because you've been taught by people who do. I teach the Bible in light of what I believe about the Bible. I grew up in a church where someone taught the Bible in light of what he believed the Bible said. I read books by people who write books about the Bible in light of what they believe about the Bible. Right? We operate on the basis of these things. So it's not enough just to say, like, I'm just going to read the Bible on my own. 
In fact, the opposite is true. It's better to say, like, I have this system, I know what I believe, and I'm going to read the Bible, and when there are things that challenge that system that I know exists, I can wrestle with that. Otherwise, we don't do that because we read over with our system. So, systems matter, and whether you do have or not, you do, because you sit here and listen to me, and I respect you, but mine, you never need to be. And as we're going to talk about how these different theologies of the covenants affect us, you're going to hear what mine is and how I've taught the Bible the last six years in D.C. So, there are these systems, they matter, we should know what we believe, why we believe it. And so I'm going to throw out three big words, that are actually three big systems, some of which have multiple word types. The first one is called dispensationalism, which to me sounds a lot more fun than it actually is. Dispensationalism. So, what we're talking about here with these systems is how we put the Bible together. How the Old Testament relates to the New Testament, how the Old Covenant relates to the New Covenant. And when we think about these things, we should think of two kind of major categories. The first one is continuity, which is things from the Old Testament that continue into the New Testament. So, in the Old Testament, there was one God. In the New Testament, there's one God. The same God in the Old Testament continues into the New Testament. That's something that continues from the Old Testament into the New Testament. There's also discontinuity, which is things that are different. So in the Old Testament, the people of God are Israel. They're the descendants, the literal genetic descendants of Abraham. In the New Testament, the people of God are those who trust in Christ by faith. So that is something that discontinues. Different in the New Testament than it is in the Old Testament. So as we walk through these systems, I'm going to tell you about which ways they link. So the first one is dispensationalism. You already read the slides, you know the answer. Um, if you grew up in a Baptist church in Missouri or the Midwest, this is probably how you've been taught. Uh, it was hugely popular in the 70s and 80s. If you've read any of the Left Behind books or seen the Left Behind books, they write from this perspective. Because of that, it's really popular. Uh, it's like the Harry Potter of theological systems. <laughs> and, I mean, and, that's like, and that's just an example of how these systems do affect us, right? All the people that read those books didn't think, I'm learning about dispensationalism right now. They didn't question, is this good theology, is this bad theology? They read the books and they got the system. And now that's how they understand the Bible. Um, so, the first distinctive of dispensationalism, dispensationalist, is that they say God orders his relationship with his people on the basis of these dispensations. Usually there's like seven or so of them. Um, they say within these dispensations, people are responsible to God for kind of whatever revelation they have at that time of him. So they usually go from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to Moses, from Moses to Christ, from Christ to the rapture, from the rapture to the millennium. They say that God orders his relationships during these times throughout the Bible on the basis of these dispensations. So people in those times are responsible for whatever information they have at that time about God. Uh, the second major distinctive of dispensationalism is that they believe that we should interpret the Bible literally. Um, which sounds right and obvious. We're going to talk about that in a minute. The third thing is that because of number two, because they believe in this literal interpretation of the Bible, they think that all of the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament, um, like the land and the temple, uh, 
all this stuff is going to have a literal earthly fulfillment for national Israel at some point in the future. That's then applying number two to the relationship between Israel and the church. Because of that, they essentially end up with two different peoples of God. Uh, there's the Gentiles, or the church, in the New Testament, we're going to inherit kind of heavenly promises. And then there's Israel from the Old Testament, who somehow are going to be redeemed at the end, and they're going to inherit earthly promises. So we kind of get different inheritances because there are effectively two peoples of God. And then finally, dispensationalists have like a whole left behind end times scheme. Um, but you can believe in that and not believe in the rest. So some people hold to that but aren't uh, about the first three things. So that's what dispensationalism is. I'm going to tell you why I'm not a dispensationalist. Not just because I don't like the left behind series. On um, the first one, right, I don't agree with them because I don't think it's helpful to take things, even as I'm talking about theological systems, from outside the Bible and read them back into the Bible. God absolutely orders his relationship with his people throughout the Bible. He does it with covenant. And so let's talk about the covenant. I talk about dispensations. Let's use a word that's in the Bible to talk about the Bible rather than reading another word uh, to read back onto it. So uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, the whole literal thing, I feel like it's just a really, uh, I mean, how to say it's gracious it's uh, I think it's really pretentious in there. As an ungracious way to say I feel like it's you like saying biblical theology. Right? That number one that doesn't mean a lot of the other theology is just unbiblical. But it's attaching a word to your view that seems right, it seems biblical, right? It feels wrong to say we should not interpret the Bible literally. And so like, by defining themselves this way, they're saying, no one else believes we should be Bible, which isn't true. Um, but I also disagree. I think that in some places, we should not read the Bible literally. Because the Bible has figures of speech, and literary devices, and metaphors, and similes, and poetry, and apocalyptic crazy imagery. Right? There's a wheel within a wheel within another wheel that's attached to a wheel. What's the literal understanding of that, other than colossal wheels? Um, now they will say, they, they acknowledge that there is literary devices in the Bible, there's things of speech, but they believe behind them that there is a literal understanding of them. So, for example, uh, we have this description of Solomon's wife on the next slide. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Like, no doubt this is a poetic passage, it's a figure of speech, right? He's using a similar word, he are like this. If there is any literal understanding behind this, Solomon would not be praising his wife for it. <laughs> Right, the teeth are, are they're, they're fuzzy. <laughs> but it's a clean fuzzy. You have twice as many as you're supposed to. But we should interpret this figuratively. It's, it's a simile. He's saying, your teeth are white, like sheep are white. And they're clean, which is a good thing for teeth. And 
they're in a line. They match each other. And none of them are missing. Like, it's a great thing for teaching. Like, there isn't a literal understanding of this verse that makes sense. There's a figurative understanding, lots of figurative understanding that could make sense. Uh, I think mine <laughs> And so I don't, I think it's just, it's a little simplistic to say, let's just interpret all the Bible. The last thing is I get how their literal reading of scripture leads them to conclude that there's going to be a literal fulfillment for all the promises of God to Israel and sometime in the future. What I don't get is how that same literal or so-called literal understanding of scripture doesn't lead them to interpret all the literal passages in the New Testament which equate Israel and the church. To say that there's one people of God, people of God are redefined in the New Testament, Paul makes that clear. The book of Hebrews makes that clear. And so I don't think that there are two people of God. I think that there's one people of God. I think the promises that God gave to Israel, uh, ahead of myself, I think they're going to be fulfilled for the church. And so like, if you've ever wondered why some Christians get like, all up in arms about Israel, this is why. It's because they have this view that national Israel is still somehow the people of God. And so we need to protect them. America needs to protect them. And they're a nation just like any other nation. Because the people of God are no longer a nation. They are those who, by the Spirit, trust in Christ and inherit promises of liberty, which includes the land. So that's why I'm not a dispensationalist. As you can tell by that kind of sharp distinction between Israel and the church, dispensationalists put a lot of discontinuity on the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament. For them, like this time period for us is almost like a parenthesis on God's plan. God's plan is for Israel. We've got this thing about the church, and then it's for Israel again. Like we're up in heaven doing something else on our own. So they put a lot of discontinuity. Next one is covenant theology. There you go. They believe, like I just said when I responded to dispensationalism, that God does order his relationship to the people, but he does so on the basis of covenants which is exactly what we see in the Bible. Uh, but the main distinctive they have is that they believe that there are just two covenants. Um, so uh, all the covenants in Scripture all boil down into two categories. The first one is a covenant of works, which they believe God made with Adam before the fall, and essentially the promise was if he obeyed perfectly, he would be rewarded with eternal life. That's the covenant of works. Obviously, Adam didn't keep that covenant, so they believe that God made a covenant of grace with his people. And then all the other covenants in the scripture, the one with Noah, the one with Abraham, the one with Israel, the one with David, and then the new covenant, they all fit under that one kind of overarching covenant of grace that God has made with his people. The last kind of main distinctive they have is that they divide the Old Testament law into three groups. So they say we've got kind of a, a mosaic law, the old covenant, and it's broken down into three groups. The ceremonial law, which applies to Israel worship, the civil law, which applies to the nation, and then the moral law, which is kind of God's moral law for everyone. That's what covenant theology is. A lot of covenant theologians are Presbyterians, or Reformed, or some Baptists, and they put a whole lot of continuity between the Old Testament and so, now let me tell you why I'm not a covenant theology person. Um, the first one is I think that the two, kind of the two covenant distinctions, there's covenant works, covenant grace, I think that's just a, an overly simplified way to look at the Bible. 
I think that taking all those covenants and smashing them down at two levels fails to reconcile with what's really going on in the covenants. That there are elements of grace and works in the covenants, not just the one with Adam before creation, and not just, like, it's not the only one that deals with works, and all the ones that come after don't just deal with grace. I mean, look at the Old Testament law. There's a lot of works wrapped up into the grace that they're getting made. So I don't uh, agree with that. I also think that their kind of threefold division of the law just doesn't make sense. Right? To break the law into those three groups, I, I don't think is anything Israel would have ever done. Right? For them to say, yeah, this is just a religious law, it's, it's not moral, doesn't compute. For them to say, like, our national laws have nothing to do with our morality, nothing to do with my worship. Like, that's not how they viewed it. They viewed it as a unit, which is why in the New Testament we get things like if you break a single part of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. It doesn't matter whether it's ceremonial or civil or moral. They're all moral, which is why if you break them, you're guilty of sin, regardless of which kind of law it is. So I don't agree with that distinction. I think either the whole law applies or the whole law is, as the elder Hebrew says, obsolete. And so that leads us to the next few, which is called New Covenant Theology. See, it's new, which means better. But really, New Covenant Theology is kind of like, uh, kind of like Baskin Robbins. There are lots of different flavors, and some of them are really good, and some of them are gross, and we want absolutely nothing to do with them. That's what New Covenant Theology is like. The reason why it's like that is because it is actually new. That's not why it's called New Covenant Theology. It's called New Covenant Theology because it puts an emphasis on the New Covenant. But it is a relatively new view, uh, and by new I mean like within the last hundred years, and there haven't been a lot of books written about it by really definitive scholars, so there's all these people saying this is what it is, and this is what it is, and this is what it is, and this is what it is. So you get a lot of kind of crazy stuff under one umbrella, and then some really good stuff under that same umbrella. Um, but at the same time, when I say it's new, um, I don't mean that like no one has ever interpreted the Bible this way. No one has ever called it this until now. Like one of my biggest arguments against dispensationalism used to be it's a relatively new view. Right? It's only been around for the last 200 years. Who are we to say all those people that came before us thousands and thousands of years didn't interpret the Bible rightly? But hey, lucky for them, we're here to do it right. Um, but now I can't use that argument against myself. That's just be fair. But the reality is, this is relatively new. This lacking definition, so that's why I have to use a different term to talk about, which is the uh, following the colon progressive covenantalism, which the name is bit bad. Like, it's not good, but these guys have come out and they've said, like, let's define a flavor of New Covenant theology so that we can only say what we believe about the Bible and distinguish ourselves from, you know, all those other weird, like, spumoni. They're not spumoni, New Covenant theology, or progressive covenantalism. And the reason why it's called this is because that's also how it defines itself. So I'm going to throw out a definition, which is actually already up there. Progressive seems to underscore or emphasize the unfolding nature of God's revelation over time, 
like covenantalism, emphasizes that God's plan unfolds through the covenants, and that all the covenants find their fulfillment, telos, and terminus in Christ. We strongly argue the unity of God's plan promise culminating in the new covenant. And this is from a guy named Steve Lobo. Um, he's someone who Jim and I sat in a Sunday school class when he taught through Hebrews. Uh, and he taught this way. And as he was teaching, I was thinking, man, this is answering all the questions that I've had about the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they relate. This is giving an expression to what I believe about the Bible and haven't been able to put it to words. And finally, they released a book which does that in even greater detail. Um, and so that's where this quote comes from. And, and what they're saying is what I just said about why covenants matter. The covenants matter because it's through the covenants that we get the story of God in Scripture. Covenants are the mean that God uses to express that story to his people, both to create an environment, a relationship in which he can live that story, and also it will help uh, transmit it century after century after century as a new covenant come and progressively unfolds. That's what progressive covenantalism is. And it emphasizes the new covenant as he says the fulfillment uh, actually Christ, sorry, Christ in the new covenant is the fulfillment, the telos, the terminus. What those three words mean is that all of the other covenants are like giant arrows that point Jesus. Uh, so the covenant God made with Abraham and David and Moses and Adam and Noah, those covenants exist to say, hey, there is a Redeemer coming. Wait for him. Trust in God. Trust in the promise that he's made to you. Hope that the Redeemer is coming because God has said it was. All those promises, uh, all those covenants find their fulfillment in Christ. We also find their telos, which means purpose or goal. The goal of the covenants is to get to Jesus. And finally, they find their terminus. They're in, in Jesus. So, the covenant God made with Adam and Noah and Abraham and David and Israel find their end in Christ. So, next week we're going to talk about what it means that the old covenant is obsolete. I'm going to say that what it means is that it means that it's done. It's that we're no longer under obligation to keep the old covenant. Not just the ceremonial and religious parts, but all of them. And if that freaks you out, hang on until next time when I explain what I mean by all of that. Um, but what's really helpful about this view is that it creates a middle ground in between covenant theology, who are saying like lots of stuff continues, and dispensational theology, which are saying it's, it's so different in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. Uh, it goes through the middle and says there are things that continue and things that discontinue. And so let's not just argue with each other, but let's try to find some sort of mediating position. And that's what the goal is in writing the religion, is to create some sort of middle ground between these two opposing views and say, this is kind of like how it's in the Bible. It's not really like dispensation, it's not really like covenant theology, but instead, uh, covenants are the story, or the way the story unfolds progressively across history. So, um, if you've been at BC for very long, this is how I teach the Bible. For me, covenants are very important, uh, especially the new covenant. The story of God is hugely important in BC, and we talk about it a lot. Not just so we can talk about the story and know the story, but so that more importantly, we can share the story with other people. And the way God's story unfolds is through the covenants. 
So the covenants matter because the story matters. So me saying what I've said about what I believe about New Covenant theology shouldn't surprise you unless you just haven't been paying attention. When we talk about the law, when I talk about the law, this is how I talk about it. When I talk about the New Covenant versus the Old Covenant, this is how I talk about it. Um, when I talk about the story of God, I think about the covenants as I work through it. Because they are how we get from creation to Christ. You cannot get from creation to Christ without talking about the covenants. You cannot use the word covenant. But if you talk about Adam, who's pretty important, or Noah, who's pretty important, or Abraham, or Israel, or David, you're talking about the covenants that God makes with his people. So, what we're going to do now, very quickly, is go through the covenants. I want to show you how the story of God unfolds through the covenants in Scripture. The covenants are like stepping stones across the Old Testament that get us, as I just said, from creation to Christ. So, in the beginning, God makes a covenant with Adam. Now, if you read Genesis 1 through 3, you're not going to find the word covenant. So, we've got to go to Genesis 6, next one, 18. This is God speaking to Noah. He says, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now you're wondering, he's talking about the covenant God made with Adam, why would the universe that God said to Noah? The reason why is because this word establish, when it's used in the context of covenant, it's not used to make new covenants. It's used to reaffirm the promises of a prior covenant to a new person. It's kind of like transferring one covenant to someone else. So when God says, to Noah, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. He's saying there's a preceding covenant to this arrangement that I'm making with you. That preceding covenant is with Adam. When God creates Adam in his image, uh, he creates him for a unique relationship with him, covenantal relationship with him. He gives him a unique role in creation. A role is his obligation of loyalty as part of a member of the covenant. So he's making a covenant with Adam. His covenant is that he would do what God calls him to do, and not do the one thing that God tells him not to do, which is eat of the fruit of the tree and the mountain of the Adam, of course, eats from that tree. He breaks the covenant that God has made with him. Because of that sin in the human race, God's judgment is poured out on his people. Uh, the curse is transmitted to humanity, and soon that enters the world, and God's creation becomes corrupt. Things get worse from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel, and so by the time we get to Noah, things have gone off the rails in a major way, and God is ready to wipe every one out. He finds Noah, and in the verse we just read, he makes, or he establishes his covenant with Noah. He takes that promise that he gave to Adam, and he passes it on to Noah. He's saying that through you, I'm going to send the redeemer that I promised to Adam. It's going to come not just through his descendant, but through your descendant. So God establishes this covenant with Noah, and as soon as Noah and his family get off the ark, Noah sins. Noah breaks the covenant that he makes with God, and yet God is still keeping the promises that he's made through Adam to Noah, and Following Noah, things get worse and worse and worse as we need to tell them about it. People are doing the very same thing that Adam and Eve were doing. They're trying to put themselves in God's place. They're trying to build a ladder up to the heavens so that they can take his place for themselves. They say, we want to make a name for ourselves. God confuses their language and scatters them. And in the very next chapter, he comes to Abraham and says, I will make a name for you. God establishes this covenant with Abraham 
and to Abraham he gives kind of three really big promises. He promises to make Abraham a great nation, and that promise overturns part of the curse of the fall, which said that Adam and Eve would have difficulty bringing forth children into the world. So God's promise to Abraham is that through him, through his descendants, he's going to overturn the curse of the fall from Genesis 3. And then he says he's going to give him a land that overturns the difficulty that God told Adam he would have work in the land. It's not going to be a land like that. It's going to be a promised land that's growing with milk and honey and prosperous. He promises that he's going to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. He's saying to Abraham, I'm going to be on your side. That answers this kind of ongoing conflict that God promised in Genesis 3, 15, that would be between the enemies of the people of God, the seed of the serpent, and the people of God, the seed of the woman. So God is telling Abraham, I'm making this covenant with you, and through this covenant, all those curses from creation are going to be overturned. Abraham Faith. Promise passes on from him to Isaac to Jacob to Israel. And we see in Abraham's family that they are not perfect either. Sin is still present in them. And so God's promise has moved from creation uh, with Adam to kind of another creation with Noah to this one family. And then through this one family, they grow into a nation who's taken down from Egypt. They're oppressed by Pharaoh, and then God comes and says, I'm going to keep my promise to Abraham and bring them out of Egypt. I'm going to take them into the land that I promised to give. So God is keeping his promise that he made to Abraham, even though Abraham didn't uphold completely the end of the agreement that he was supposed to. So God redeems Israel, he brings them out of Egypt, he delivers them miraculously from the Egyptians, and then he creates a covenant with them. Now that they're bigger than one family, even though they're still one family, they're the size of a nation, he gives them the laws of a nation. He creates Israel in their place, and he makes a covenant with them, and his covenant is that he's going to be their peace, he's going to be their God, they're going to be his people, and they need to respond to the relationship they have with him with obedience. I think one important thing for us to see when we think about the Old Testament law is that it starts with grace. God redeemed them out of Egypt and then he gives them the law. Often we think it's purely legalistic and it's not. There's grace built into even the fact that it has a sacrificial system. He's saying, you're not going to be able to keep this law perfectly, so I'm going to build in ways out for you so that you can still keep the covenant. But Israel doesn't keep the covenant. They fall short. They break it. They turn after other gods. Um, And there's this kind of ongoing cycle of Rebellion and repentance and rebellion and repentance where they come back to God and say, God, we keep the covenant, we keep the covenant, and then they don't keep the covenant. Uh, and finally, God finds David, who he says is a man after his own heart. Uh, and he makes a covenant with David that he is going to be his God, and David's going to be like a son to him. And that through David's descendants is going to come this king that's going to reign forever. So God's promise is universal at Adam. And it narrows because he kills a bunch of people with Noah. And that narrows even further to this one family with Abraham. It goes bigger into a nation with Israel. And it narrows again with David. God is saying to David, and the covenant that he makes with him is that the Redeemer that I promised to Adam, the Redeemer that I promised to Noah, the Redeemer that I promised to Abraham, he's going to be one of your descendants too. And he's going to be a king. And these promises that he gives to David are a reiteration of the promises he made to Abraham. 
things that he says to Abraham, he says to David. He told Abraham in Genesis 17 that Abraham was going to have kings descended from him. To David, he tells him that one of his descendants is going to be king forever. Uh, he's telling him that the Messiah, this promised redeemer, is going to come, he's going to be a king, and he comes through the covenant that God makes with David. David fails, like everybody else. His sons fail. Solomon worships false gods. Because of his rebellion, God splits the nation into two and then eventually uses their enemies to punish them and carry them off out of the land into exile. And it's during this time that God comes to his people and gives them the promise of a new covenant. He tells them that he's going to make another covenant with them, not like the covenant that he made with their forefathers. This is a covenant that they're going to be able to keep, because as we read in Hebrews earlier, God is going to write their, his law on their mind. He's going to write it on their hearts. He's going to put his spirit within them. He's going to help them, empower them, enable them to keep the covenant that he's making with them. That's what the Old Testament ends with. It ends with them hoping that God is going to keep his promise to them, even though none of them have kept their promises to God. The new covenant is like Matthias saying, even after all of you break your promises, I'm going to make more. They're going to be better than the last one. Because it's going to be when you keep your promises to God. Covenants matter because without the covenants, none of that happens. Without the covenants, God doesn't exist with his people in relationship. Without the covenants, God doesn't deliver these <laughs> magnificent promises that he's going to overturn the effects of sin in his world. Without the new covenant, without the promise of the new covenant, we're in the same boat that they are. We're looking at an ongoing cycle of rebellion and sin and rebellion and sin until eventually God has to pour out his judgment on us because we've broken stuff beyond repentance. But he gives us this new covenant which he enables us to keep. We're going to talk more about the new covenant next week and how Jesus, as the promise revealed, as the center of Scripture, as the storyline of Scripture comes and fulfills the new covenant, he brings it in its fullness. And that's why the covenant's matter. I understand that by talking about all that stuff, going through all that history, like it, it seems like it's just details that we don't need to know. But the reason why we don't need to know it the reason why we need to know it more and to have categories in which we can use to tell it better is because there are people out there who don't. There are people out there who don't know that God wants to enter into relationship with them. There are people out there who think that it wholly relies on their performance. They don't understand that performance isn't part of the covenant. We need to tell them. And if we're going to tell them, we're going to use the covenants to do it. So we might as well understand what they are, why they matter, and how they help us make sense of the Bible. So we're going to talk more about that next week, and specifically how the new covenant affects all of the old ones. For today, as we take the Lord's Supper, I would just encourage you to think about how all the covenants exist to point to Jesus. That's what the Word Supper does for us every week. It's, it's not a covenant. Okay? It's something entirely different. But as we're going to talk about next week, when Jesus instituted the Word Supper, it was a covenant deal. It was a deal where he was redefining the relationship they had with God. And so every time we celebrate the Word
Lord's Supper. We're looking back to what He's done. We're looking back on the fact that He is the fulfillment of all of those covenants. We're not waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. The promises of God all find their yes in Christ, and Christ has come. He's died for us. His body was broken, his blood was shed. And because of that, we celebrate his death as the end of everything that came before. It all pointed to him and became Now we're waiting for the final installment of that yes to all of his promises. So we take the words up, we look back on the fact that he has returned, and we look forward in the hope that he is coming soon to deliver that yes. I'm going to pray, and I'll encourage you just to take a few moments to prepare your heart to celebrate his death for what it really means for you. Okay. Uh, thank you that you are God who makes some few sense. I think that you use, you come down to our level, and use our language in our institutions uh, to tell us more about who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you that in your word we get your story. We get Jesus, both looking forward to coming in the Old Testament and looking back upon his coming journey. I pray that today that you would increase our appreciation and affection for your word and the way you interact with us in it. Not so that we can just love your word, so that we can love your son, so that we can love and worship and praise and glorify you for what you've done for us. I pray now that as we celebrate your death, Jesus, on behalf, that we would be reminded, we would be drawn to you and worship for all that you have done on the cross, for all that you have accomplished on our behalf. And we would truly long for you to come and return and make all things right with Thomas.